We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. Three weeks after the convention ends, the first of the many letters debating the proposed Constitution appears in published newspapers. The discussion revolves around whether the nation should remain as it is, a confederation of 13 sovereign republics, or if it should move to a single central government. Already dividing lines are being drawn between those who favor the new constitution and those who fear that it goes too far. By now, virtually every newspaper in the country has printed a copy of the proposed constitution, allowing every citizen to read it or at least hear it, and to discuss it. This is the moment when every man will have to decide for himself under what impressions he will act. For this is the first, and perhaps only time in all of history, the people are asked to decide the form of government, not just who will be the leaders. And the debates are just beginning. We live in an era when information and the exchange of that information, particularly news type information, is almost instantaneous. Before you can even read a news story sometimes, as uh, has been an example in the news of recent days, before you can even read what's going on, the, the story has already been updated somewhere else and information has changed. For example, uh, this week at four o'clock on, on one particular morning, I received a, a notice that a story had been posted about the speaker's race for the House of Representatives and that the leading candidate for the speakership was a certain congressman and he was expected this morning to take that election with relative ease. Almost before I had finished reading that story, uh, another story popped up saying he had dropped out of the speaker's race and confusion has ensued and so forth and so on. It's amazing sometimes how fast information is exchanged and flows in our world today, particularly compared to times past, I suppose, at least as we tend to look at it. But the truth of the matter is that rapid exchange of information, particularly news information, is a uniquely, or always has been, I guess, a uniquely American uh, expertise. During the American Revolution, the British were shocked at how rapidly the colonies communicated with one another with what was going on. I mean, they'd never seen anything like this. To Americans, it sort of represents a thirst, I guess, for knowledge perhaps a 
community of being involved, the close knitness of the American people, even even with even when separated by uh, state lines and accents and the likes of that. We want to know what's going on. Uh, one of the best books out there that I can highly recommend. It doesn't have anything to do with the Constitution, but it has to do with the Revolutionary War, and that's Reporting the Revolutionary War by Todd Anderlich. And you can get it um, online, and and I will don't like to say this, but you can probably get it remaindered at a, at a big bookstore if you go look for it. Uh, so it's relatively inexpensive. But it's a fantastic book, and it's just it's just full of newspaper articles from the Revolutionary War, from the pre-Revolutionary War period all the way through the war, and how they communicated uh, what was going on. Little of that had changed by 1787. When the convention ended on September 17th, the Constitution itself was communicated, as we said last week, to Congress, but it was also sent to each of the states as well. Within nine days of the end of the convention, virtually every major newspaper in the entire country, all 13 colonies, 13 and a half colonies, had already printed the, co the Constitution in their pages. Imagine that, if you will, within nine days of the end of the convention, in an era when electricity was, well, basically used to, to electrocute a kite, um, in an era when communication compared to what we think of it was almost painfully slow, but really wasn't, when it took a month at least to send a letter to the king over in England, in that era, within nine days, virtually every person in America knew that there was a newly proposed constitution and had had the opportunity to either read it themselves or have it read to them, as so often happened in the pubs and in the meeting places and so forth and so on. Imagine, if you will, and I often do, uh, imagine my, my great, great nine generations ago grandfather as he listened to the reading of these words and the discussions that would, that would commence in whether or not this was the right way to go or not. It's, an, it's something we don't think about. This, this we the people, these brilliant words by Governor Morris that essentially took it out of the hands of the, the political elite and put it in the hands of the people and said, what do you think? What, where do you stand on this? It's, this has never been done before. Do you understand that? What the people were reading in their papers, in their newspapers, in their handbills, in the pamphlets, was something that had never happened in the entire history of the world. The nation, the people of the nation were being asked, do you want to change your government? Not, not who's running your government, not, the, not you know, whether it's X party or Y party or this king or that king or this constitutional monarch or that constitution, not that. Do you want to change the fundamental way that you do your government? And the people themselves had the opportunity to not only read this, but to weigh in on it. And because the states would decide how this was going to happen, because the states would decide whether or not uh, to ratify the Constitution or not, and it was up to each state as to how to do that, the element of grassroots politics entered right back into this again. And someone has brilliantly said, all politics is grassroots. And this was an ex a super example of that in the sense that all of a sudden, Congress debates and argues whether we should do this or whether we should do that. State legislatures look at it and kind of go, wait. But before any of those people can react, 
we the people of the United States have the document in our hands and we can already start the process of whether or not we should or should not ratify this document. It's intriguing and it's interesting and it's a fascinating study of course in, in American uh, philosophy and the way we do things. One of the most precious rights that we have always held as Americans, and we inherited this from the British, of course, is that right of the freedom of the press. And so these newspapers that were printing it were, for the most part, quick to decide one way or the other whether they were in support of the new Constitution, editorially speaking, or not. In, in, by way of example, today we have newspapers that endorse candidates, issues, uh, measures, ballot uh, initiatives, that sort of thing. In the same way, papers in the 1788s, 1788s, that's not a word, in the seven, late 1780s did essentially the same thing. And many of the papers, particularly those in Pennsylvania, made it very clear right up front that they were in favor of this Constitution, that they, they felt that this Constitution editorially was the best possible solution to the ills that faced the nation at that time. In Pennsylvania, many of the newspapers famously refused to publish any letters to the editor, articles, whatever, advertisements critical of the Constitution. In other words, they exercised their freedom of the, of the press to essentially end the debate, in Pennsylvania at least, at least editorially speaking, as to whether or not the Constitution was a good idea or not. That might fly in the face of the very fundamental idea of freedom of the press, but at the same time, it just goes to show us how little has changed in the ensuing 200 and some odd years. The media, even in the 1780s, decided what it thought was best and editorialized in that direction without any concern for whether or not they presented the opposing view or not. I find it interesting that uh, even today people whine that you know, the media is supposed to be even-handed. When did that start? It, it's never been that way, so I'm not sure uh, why people think that. It's up to the consumer to be discerning as to what media you consume in, in this process. And that's, of course, where we start in, in, in today's discussion, I suppose, of this ratification process. We are literally two weeks separated, 14 days, from the end of the convention-ish and uh, moving on, uh, maybe 21 days, sorry, uh, from the end of the convention and moving on. Less than a month. And people have already begun to decide which way they want to go with this. Ultimately, this is what the convention, I think, really thought wanted to happen. They wanted the people to be involved with this. And, and of course, they knew that this was not going to be easy. They knew that there's going to be one state, Rhode Island, where this is just going to be um, a Charlie Foxtrot, as we would have said in the military. But, but around the country, they thought, well, this will, this will stimulate debate. And, and I think one of the things that I've come to appreciate is the fact that they've realized that these 55 men and the 39 that signed it were humble enough to realize that, you know, this is the best we can do. What do you think of it? It's the ultimate in peer review, if you think about it, uh, as far as documentation goes. The debates, however, are going to revolve around two positions. Now, I know that's simplified, and I know to us today, 
it seems like a foregone conclusion. We, we have the Federalists, because we're, we're familiar with them because of the Federalist Papers, and we have the Anti-Federalists, which we're somewhat familiar with because we understand that it was their objections that led to the Bill of Rights. And if you ask, you know, 100 people on the street, you might get 50% of them that would know those two things. You, because you listened to Constitution Thursday, probably knew it. But what you probably didn't know was that the names, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, were actually usurped from one another in a, in a lot of ways, particularly the Federalists. The Federalists kind of took that name on themselves, even though the Anti-Federalists described themselves as Federalists. And if you think about this in terms of how a government works, the, the idea of federalism is that you have a central government that more or less cooperates with a bunch of sovereign governments in, in, in a confederation, hence the name. Uh, the Federalists really wanted to push for a central federal government, and so they sort of usurped that name, which is odd because uh, the first, the very first anti-Federalist position paper uh, was was came into existence on October 8th, 1788. It was published, uh, it's called A Letter from a Federal Farmer, where this, where this farmer supposedly, uh, or at least pretending to be, because remember in this era, nobody uh, signed their actual names to these documents. They used pseudonyms and, and pen names. The, the Federal Farmer considered himself to be the Federalist. In fact, he wrote, uh, about this, the fact that you know, this is our this is our government. This is one of the things he was concerned about. And his his words are, uh, the plan of the government now proposed is evidently calculated totally to change in time our condition as a people. Instead of being thirteen republics under a federal head, it is clearly designed to make us one consolidated government. That was the position of someone who considered himself to be a Federalist, per se, even though he would eventually be labeled as an Anti-Federalist, and theoretically, to this day, we still don't know who wrote those words. We suspect that it might have been Richard Henry Lee, but it could also have been uh, Mel uh, Melan... Mel I always mess up his first name. M-E-L-A-N-C-T... Melanchthon Smith. I have the same problem with the Pirates Reliever. Uh, it, it could have been anybody. It could have been anybody else. But those are the two leading suspects. Um, it, it it was. But if if you look at the words that are here, you begin to see the divide between the two philosophies. Whether we're to be thirteen sovereign republics or whether we're to be one central government. Now the interesting to me thing about this is that w w with the Constitution's ratification, which will come in a few weeks, we actually got neither of those. We got more sovereignty, more central government, but we really limited the power of the central government uh, far more than I think the, the Federalists wanted to. And as, as we read their writings, we'll find out that it is far more strict uh, restrictions on the federal government than they ever wanted to have happen. And of course, through time, the vision of the of those framers was that the central government, the federal government, would essentially become the government and subsume, for all practical purposes, the states as anything other than administrative areas. Uh, you'd have to suggest that ultimately they won, but it took a civil war to do it. 
and, and, and 150 years to do it, but they did manage to accomplish it. This letter from the federal farmer is intriguing because it's, it's here that I have begun to work on a, on a political theory uh, that I've, I've mentioned before. If you listen, uh, one, one, one of the things that I've, I, I see to people all the time is that people don't change. Uh, that, that's one of, my, one of my ten laws. People don't change. They do the same things for the same reason throughout history, usually with the same results. Uh, the only difference is they convince themselves that this time it'll be different because technology is better. But in reality, the motivations of the people and the, the actions of the people are always the same. We've already seen this with the newspapers, with the media, particularly in Pennsylvania and some of the other states, uh, declaring that they won't publish any anti-constitutional uh, editorials. They won't take up that defense. They won't, they won't do that. They want the Constitution, and so they're going to promote the snot out of it. And by, it's no different than the media today. So we see that. We've, we've seen the debates in the, in the convention where uh, people are motivated more by money than they are by altruism. And there were points at the convention where people, no less than George Washington, were questioning whether or not some of the people in that convention even cared about the nation as a whole compared to what they wanted for their states. People don't change. They do the same things. And so as we turn to the, to the letter, the, the, the first letter here, it's, it's called uh, Letters from the Federal Farmer to the Republican, which is what they referred to uh, the, the other folks at that point. Uh, number one, he writes this, the first principal question occurs is, whether, considering our situation, we ought to precipitate the adoption of the proposed Constitution. It's a good question, and it's the, it is the real question. Should we do this? If we remain cool and temperate, he writes, we are in no immediate danger of any commotions. We are in a state of perfect peace and in no danger of invasions. Well, that's true to a degree. However, it's also not true, isn't it? It's kind of misplaying some of the facts if you look at the, the global situation at that point, the fact that Britain is still occupying friends, uh, forts on the American frontier that they were supposed to evacuate as part of the terms of the treaties, but they haven't because the United States hasn't kept its end of the bargain. We, we go all the way back to the beginning. We talk about the, the condition of the nation was dangerous at this point, but the Federalist farmer, we'll just call him the anti-Federalist position, is that there is no danger. And there's almost a, an element here, and he's actually going to say this a little bit later. Uh, they'll talk about the fact that, well, and, and even if they do invade, we have the same militia army that just kicked the butt of the greatest empire in the world. We're, we're in no danger here. Do we hear discussions like that today? Do you buy those arguments today? Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't change. He goes on. The state governments are in the full exercise of their powers, which is also true. They are in the full exercise of their powers, right down to the point of suppressing people's uh, fought-for rights, Shays' Rebellion. And our governments answer all present exigencies except the regulation of trade, securing credit in some cases, and providing for the interest in some instances of the public debts. And whether we ought whether we adopt a change three or four months hence can make but little odds with the private circumstances of individuals. Their happiness and prosperity, after all, depend principally upon their own exertions. 
it it's an impal it's a compelling argument that he makes that everything is just fine and dandy that there is no real danger there's no real danger whatever dangers exist exigencies exist are being made up uh, to try to scare us into changing our form of government from 13 sovereign republics with a federal government to essentially one government which uh, by this constitution, as we already know, doesn't have a Bill of Rights and doesn't secure many of the rights that we feel like we have already earned and deserve. There's almost this, I, I'm not even sure what the word for it is. At, I, I have a word for it, but I don't want to use it yet. Uh, this, this ideology that there really is no danger and that therefore everything should remain the same. It's very conservative, which is odd because, of course, today, those of us that would be uh, considered Federalists, I suppose, in the 1788s would be considered uh, the conservatives today, even though in 1788 we were clearly the radicals. See how things change along the way. And yet the federal farmer is appealing to the idea that there is no real danger. The dangers that have been presented that Britain might invade, that we might default on debts, that individual rights might be ignored. They're all just, you know, played up. They're not real dangers. And even if they were, eh, we're all right. The people themselves are responsible for their own happiness. The individual is responsible for his or her own accomplishments and his own achievements. Do we hear anywhere in today's politics those same kind of arguments, those, virtually those same words? It's interesting, isn't it? That's my, that's my theory, I guess, that I've been working on for some time, that the libertarian movement of today draws its head, it draws its, draws its inspiration from the anti-federalist movement of the 1780s. They, verbatim, they're almost, uh, verbiage-wise, not verbatim, but verbiage-wise, they're almost identical. And you'll see that over and over again as the federal, the anti-federalists really especially downplay the idea of international dangers. They just really, it's none of our business, stay out of it, we don't need to be involved. The farmer goes on. We are hardly recovered from a long and distressing war. The farmers, fishermen, etc., have not fully yet repaired the waste made by it. Industry and frugality are again assuming their proper station, however. Private debts are lessened, and public debts incurred by the war have been, by various ways, diminished. Have they been? <laughs> the public lands have now become productive source for diminishing them much more. I know uneasy men who wish very much to precipitate, do not admit all these facts. But they are facts well known to men who are thoroughly informed in the affairs of the country. Which brings me to my second point, which is again my first point, which is that people don't change. If you go on any social media today, and over the last week, you will see a post that says something to the effect of the Second Amendment, uh, privately armed citizens save lives followed immediately by another post that says study proves that the uh, that armed citizens don't save lives 
followed by another post that says, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood provides medical services, followed by another one that says, study says that Planned Parenthood doesn't save services. All these are facts, you see. And in the same vein, back in the 1788, you have your facts and he has his facts. How do I decide which facts are in fact true? Now, I have the advantage of historical hindsight when I look at what the federal farmer has written here. And the truth is that the debts were not being diminished by any way, shape, or form. And the truth of the matter is that there was a great economic upheaval in particularly the northeastern states were very concerned. And you did have uh, a potential for this breakaway. And of course, you had the slavery issue going on top of all this. The federal farmer presents a case that is best case. And while there's some truth to what he's saying, is it the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Or is it the facts the way he wants them to be? Likewise, I think the Federalists, as or Republicans as they were are now known, but Federalists as they will become known, do tend to, in some ways, overestimate some of the issues facing the country. They do tend to, Shays' Rebellion, while it shook people to the core, was at the end of the day a very few people in one corner of a of a small state there wasn't there, there's the tendency to you know as as we see today to politicize an event to overblow it to uh, media uh, media it up and turn it into something it wasn't i'm not saying they didn't they did this all, all, all purpose or for the purpose of getting the Constitution ratified. Clearly there were concerns and clearly there were issues that were going to have to be addressed. But both sides refer to their positions as factual. Both sides inform you that they're right and the other side is wrong. How does the person in 1788 make up that difference? How does, how does my great-grandfather, Charles, sitting in a tavern in North Carolina somewhere, decide which fact is true other than his own experience of what he has seen and experienced himself in his own condition how does he decide which way to go we must allow men to conduct on the present occasion as on similar ones he writes further they will urge a thousand pretenses to answer their purposes on both sides when we want a man to change his condition we describe it as miserable wretched and despised and draw a pleasing picture of that which we would have him assume. And when we wish the contrary, we reverse our descriptions. Whenever a clamor is raised and idle men get to work, it is highly necessary to examine facts carefully and without unreasonably suspecting men of falsehood, to examine and inquire attentively under what impressions they act. It's too often the case in political concerns that men state facts not as they are, but as they wish them to be. And almost every man by calling to mind past scenes, will find this to be true. It's intriguing to me that the federal farmer writes that, having just essentially poo-pooed the facts as other people saw them. It goes to show to us, folks, and I, and I want you to understand this, because we don't have anything to compare this to today. Nothing like this happens now. We, today, we have a vote on some issue. I, in California, we had Prop 8. We have a campaign, we have an issue. But at the end of the day, who really decides what it is? Not us. This is the first, and I think the only time in all of mankind's history 
that the people of the United States have been asked to weigh in. One way or the other, your state's going to figure out how it's going to do it. My state is going to figure out how we're going to do it. We're going to write letters. We're going to have debates. We're going to have discussions. There are volumes, 23 volumes, I think, is the official record of the ratification process. We're not going to go through every detail of that. Some states, it's very simple. By December, uh, Delaware is going to approve this thing with, with very little argument, very little debate at all. Some states, it's going to be very, very easy. And some states are going to be dragged kicking and screaming. Some states, like New York, are going to be focal points for debates. And letters are going to be written. Of course, the Federalist Papers are written uh, for that purpose. But we're going to look at those two primary discussion points. Whether we should change from a republic, 13 sovereign republicans with a, with a confederate government, to a government that is strong and central, or whether we should not do so. And we have to examine the facts carefully. And we have to take them into account the way we're supposed to. Because otherwise, well, this thing is going to go, there's still the potential of if we don't ratify this, we still end up with 13 independent countries going in different directions. And nobody, of course, wants that, except for England, Spain, France, Russia, Portugal, and you know, a few other minor countries around the world. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.